Hey, everybody. Welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. I'm Hith Liday. I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. Joining me this week is one of the great ATQ writers, Badwater. How you doing? Doing just fine. The, the closer I get to spring game, the better things get, right? Uh <laughs> Yeah, we are uh, getting uh, pretty close, although the Oregon football spring game is the latest of all of the Pac-12 spring games. April 29th, uh, the uh, 11 other Pac-12 teams all go uh, earlier than they do, um, although they are tightly clustered, like they all start on uh, 415. Um, and then the next round is for, you know, 22 and then Oregon is last to 429 and then that's it. Like in previous years, it had been like all sort of scattered around. So like, that's, you know, that's the, that's when I'm going to start writing my Pac-12 previews. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm currently finishing up my transfers, uh, you know, articles in order to, to be in a position to start writing my, um, my preview articles, you know, for then. So like, yeah, we're, we're getting out yeah. of winter and, and into spring practices and, and we and, have a month uh, of anticipation. Yeah. Um, but we are still in winter and we are still in uh, winter sports. Um, so let's talk about those. Um, uh, you know, b- uh, baseball, uh, uh, crushed Northwestern state, um, uh, in their four game series. Uh, uh, so, you know, we'll, uh, we'll skip talking about them. Good for them. They're going down to Arizona, uh, this weekend. Uh, we'll talk about them, uh, next week, probably. Um, yeah. Uh, when, they, when they weren't crushing scores, they would, uh, win by, you know, measly five points. It was a shutout. So we'll uh, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Some of those scores are bonkers though. Like, uh, and then, uh, let's see, uh, you know, men's basketball had some transfer news. We'll probably wind up talking about that a little bit, uh, next week. Um, women's basketball's, uh, run ended at the, the, uh, uh, in Seattle. Um, they played, you know, several games in Eugene, which they won comfortably. And then they went on the road and lost, which was pretty much the pattern, um, you know, all season long. They, I think, uh, they won three true road games the entire season. Um, you know, just not a team that, you know, played very comfortably on the road. Um, what did you think about this performance, uh, you know, in, in Seattle, do you think it can be chalked up to just not being able to play well on the road or, you know, what's up with this? Um, well, yes, but yeah, I think we can, um, uh, I think the, the biggest reason why the ducks lost in Seattle was because they desperately needed to have a healthy grace Van and be able to play. She was only healthy for two minutes and even though she was in the game in the second half, you know, she was she was obviously doing a little bit of limping and hobbling around. But even so, you know, Grace Van Sluten plays for 12 minutes total in the game, um, only scores six points. You know, she's being hampered by that uh, upper thigh injury. Um and yet, um, India Rogers and Grace Chance play for 30 and 35 minutes, respectively, and are only able to score one more point than an unhealthy Grace Van Sluten. Uh, yeah, you know, I think part of it is, you know, part of it doesn't show up in the box score, you know, but, but like Philly Che is, goes out 
uh, of the game early on foul trouble. And, yeah. you know, Washington is a team that you can exploit because they don't really have a big and, you know, you can control that team um, with your bigs. But, you know, Oregon effectively was playing, you know, for most of this game without a big themselves. So it's sort of like, you know, you, you sort of you didn't have your best way to control that team. Um, right. And even when even when Che came back uh, in the game uh, early in the third period, she had she picked up another quick foul. Yeah. yeah. She had three fouls and then, you know, was just playing cautiously for the rest of the game. I, you know, there were there were times in this game, I think, um, where it felt like, oh, man, Washington can't can't, you know, Washington can't miss. You know, they were making it to the basket and making layups. And it was like, oh, man, this is depressing. Um, the box score really doesn't reflect it, though. Like, this was an ugly game, you know, from a shooting perspective. Like, uh, you know, if you're a Washington fan and you're looking at this box score, just hang your head in shame because, you know, they shot 36% from the floor. Um, they shot 15% from the three point arc, like including going over three in the, the fourth quarter when they're trying to close down the game. Um, they shot 10 for 16 from the free throw line. Like, I mean, it was just, this was a bad shooting performance out of Washington. Nothing that Washington wanted to do offensively or defensively was particularly effective. Um, other the, than control points in the paint. They, they did. Well, you're right. They shot. Well, they shot better in the paint than they shot from the perimeter, but that just means they were shooting yeah. from the paint better than the perimeter. It doesn't mean they were shooting well. Um, they right. rebounded well, you know, they were getting a lot of second cho- chance opportunities, but that's, you know, but that's it. Like, uh, and, and I just wonder, uh, how much a, um, a Che that wasn't in foul trouble and a healthy Grace Van Sluten, yep, might have uh, altered that. I, you know, I, I think that's fair, but like, you know, how, how much worse of a shooting team did you want Washington to be, you know, in order to like, did, you know, like my, my point is going to be, you know, this was a miserable offensive performance out of Oregon. And yeah, it was, and that's a valid and, point. And, and, you know, I, I understand that Chase in foul trouble. I understand that Van Sluten is injured. I understand that Washington's making some points in the paint and they're getting some, you know, rebounds. All of those things are true. And it's, and yet Washington shoots 36% from the floor and 15% from three. And even if, and if magically Che were healthy and, or, or, you know, not in foul trouble and, and Van Sluten were healthy and that they were not going to weigh, you know, uh, you know, a bunch more, you know, h- how much worse of a shooting team could Washington perform? What if they were 30% in the floor, you know, like th- th- you can't ask for them to shoot worse in this game. Like you just can't, like, it's ridiculous to ask Washington to shoot worse in this game. Like, uh, well, the- I, I wonder, and uh, I'm, I'm not going to point fingers at, India Rogers for anything, but it was really curious to me at halftime how she had managed to only score two points and was and only shot zero for six in the second quarter. Yeah, I mean that's that's where I come back to is is like I mean 
I don't know. This counts as like pointing fingers. I'm not trying to like shame anybody. I'm just, I'm performing the job of an analyst. I'm trying to say like, where is the greatest weakness? Like where is the deviation from the norm, you know, or from expectation, the greatest. And so therefore where should you pin, you know, the, the greatest, uh, uh, you know, reason for the loss on and, and where I locate that is the, where the usual scorers are, are not showing up and to wit and your Rogers stat line is two for 12 from the floor. Uh, yep. Chance gray three for 11 from the floor Tahina pow, pow five for 13 from the floor. Like, uh, you know, uh, other players who had been champions of previous games, like Elise Hurst, two for six from the floor, including zero for three from the three point line. Um, Taya Hansen, you know, who I'd kind of been questioning how she'd been, you know, uh, you know, you know, why was Taya Hansen on the floor when she was sort of a black hole of uh, scoring, you know, second leading scorer, you know, she was four from nine from the floor, including four from seven from the three point arc, you know, way to go Taya Hansen. This might've been Taya Hansen's mm-hmm. best game from a scoring, you know, standpoint and like, <laughs> and that's and, kind of saying something about what the rest of the team, you know, was performing at, you know, like yeah, for the lack of uh, some points from Grace Van Sluten. Who, right. Yeah, was you know, yeah, to, if, to if Grace, but, you know, if Grace Van Sluten's not able to to play for most of the game, then everybody else has to step up. And and Taya Hansen did step up, and everybody else did the whatever the opposite of stepping up is. Um Tahina Pow Pow and Chance Gray and India Rogers um and Elise Hurst did the opposite of stepping up when it came to to scoring um in in the context of uh, Grace Van Sluten's injury. Um and between so, the four of them, like that's that able- is where, and I'm not trying to like it, make anybody feel bad. I'm not trying to point fingers and say y- y'all ought to be ashamed of yourselves or anything. I'm trying to perform the job of an analyst and say that is where you know the game was lost. Right, and between the four of them, you should have been able to scratch up the five points necessary to get the win. Yeah, you know that that you know that's that's you know analytically speaking that is the deviation from the norm um in which you know the game was lost uh and i would you know go so far as to say that that uh and i don't really think this is go, going very far at all you know which is say this fits the pattern of just about every loss that oregon has had um the entire season, which is that like the opposing team shoots well under 50% because, because they just do because Oregon's a pretty good defensive team. Um, and you know, is a pretty athletic team and has, you know, bigs and, you know, let's face it. Most teams don't shoot very well. Um, uh, and, uh, and all Oregon has to do is show up and show shoot 50% from the floor and they'll win. Like, that's it. I mean, like, I kind of, you know, I I think I think maybe I could just say that about every women's basketball game um, that Oregon plays from now until the end of time is, uh, uh, you know, unless they're playing, you know, final four basketball or a team that's a final four team. You know what I mean? Like, you know, Stanford or South Carolina or Mississippi or Louisville, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like unless they're playing, you know, a team of that caliber, I am fairly certain that all Oregon has to do is show up, play the normal defense and shoot 50 percent from the floor and they will win and probably win comfortably. And the their losses are games in which they don't 
shoot 50% from the floor. Um, and, you know, we need to talk about why they're, you know, why on, on a consistent basis, they're shooting well below 50% from the floor. I don't know why that is. Um, I sure am looking forward to next season, um, in which I hope that there is some turnover in the roster and maybe the coaching staff and, uh, uh, you know, and certainly the methodology in how they, uh, you know, approach putting the ball in the basket because, you know, consistently shooting at, you know, 35%, 40%, which has got to be something where, around where their season average is, is simply like, that's not going to win you basketball games. And, 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 and given that all you need to do is hit 50% and you will win like 99% of your games, like, is just like, come on, this isn't that hard. Yeah, and I said in my recap that this last game of the season was kind of a, a, a microcosm or a template of uh, all the all the losing woes that happened during the season. I could have been watching any of our losses, yeah, yeah, you know, at, at any point in the season, and it, it looked the same. Well, and and uh, you. You know, I, I I don't know the uh, you know we're sort of waiting for a decision from India Rogers on um, going pro or not. Um, you know, we'll see how that goes. You know, when she has when she has a good game, she's you know one of the most lethal scorers uh, in the league. Um, uh, you know, I really I I really enjoyed the development of uh, Philly Che over the course of the season. Um, you know, I, I Grace Van Sluten's a freshman, uh, you know, assuming that she's healthy, I think she's the, you know, the most lethal player um, in Pac-12 basketball. Um, um, I, you know, Elise Hurst, I think, uh, you know, is uh, uh, when she's on shooting from three, um, she's just an absolute sniper. Um, Chance Gray is a freshman. She's an, she's another one where like, I was willing to accept her as a very hot and cold player. Um, because she's a freshman, you know, like I, I'm willing to accept that as being up and down. I, I won't, th- I won't accept that next year. Um, yeah, absolutely. but like, you know, the highs were so high for her that if she can just do that, you know, assuming that her highs then become, you know, what she gives you, you know, you know, t- twice a week, um, that like, yeah, you know, yeah, um, I'm into chance gray. Um, but they're, you know, the, the, like, yeah. our, uh, our other freshman Kennedy Basham is that's right. going to be a complete unknown. We, we didn't see her play it. I'm not sure she is a all. complete unknown, you know, when she's played, like I, I've been excited about her level of play. Um, it's just, you know, she's been, been unhealthy for, for, for so long. She was like the one unhealthy, you know, the, uh, you know, player going into this game, um, you know, that we didn't get to see at all. Unfortunately. I mean, she was on the, the, the sideline, she was cheering on the team. That was nice. Um, but like, yeah, there was just like, you know, this whole season, you know, there were just way too many, you know, totally inconsistent score, you know, to the point where like, you know, the fact that, um, this team had to cross their fingers and hope for freshmen like Chance Gray and Grace Van Sluten to have uh, great performances every night, um, you know, in order to win games, you know, sort of spoke to 
you know, where the team was. It's just like, you know, if you're hoping for inconsistent freshmen to give you great performances in order to win, you know, that sort of tells you where the rest of the team is. Or, or Philly Che, who's not a freshman, but like, you know, is sort of new to this. That's yeah, uh, to- totally you know. green. Yeah. Right. It's, it's sort of like, I, it's sort of, I, yeah, I, like I understand that this is sort of, you know, this was a developmental year for a number of the players. Um, like I get that. And I, I get the sort of inconsistency and, and between that and injuries are sort of going to be the norm, but there are other players on the team that don't have that excuse. Um, and, 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 and like the, and for whom like there really is no reason why they ought to be you know just putting up goose eggs or close to goose eggs um you know so often in and playing in a league and with a defense such that like you just have to perform like average you know like at at replacement level in in and like that's it you will coast to a victory and like they couldn't do that like consistently couldn't do that and like you don't you know I'm not saying I don't know what I'm saying. I, I, I'm I th- that it is frustrating because it's like okay, you knew that you were going to have a, a ten person roster. Um, it, you know they they knew they were playing with a small roster this year, and like and you knew that you were going to be you know have some freshmen you know and some developmental players who were going to be starting. Um, and, and that meant like, hey, vets, you you really need to step up and perform and provide consistent performance. And the vets didn't step up and provide consistent scoring performance. And like, and and so you had the season that you had. Yeah. Well, uh, this coming season, we have um, three newcomers that at the outset seem to have some um, some serious upside to them. Sure. And we'll see if that pans out. And Graves has also said that um, he has to be adding at least three players from the transfer portal. And I'll tell you what, those better be home runs because that's uh, what they're going to need. Well, yeah. And, and if you do a little math, it sort of implies that he's expecting, um, you know, a couple of departures too, which have not yet happened. But mm-hmm. yeah. All right, uh, let's wrap it up there uh, and take a break. Uh, When we come back, uh, we'll talk a little softball. So the softball team um, has been playing some real juggernauts. They started out conference play with uh, number 10, Washington. Uh, Then their next series was number seven, Stanford. Um, and then their most recent series was against number three, UCLA and, you know, against, and they didn't get swept, uh, by, you know, any of these, you know, teams, they took a game against all of them and they were frankly competitive, uh, you know, against all of them. Um, they were in a position to win, you know, every Every one of these games, right? You know, every single one of these games, right? Like Washington's, uh, it goes eight to six win, you know, eight to 13 loss where, where really they don't lose until like the last inning. Remember that, you know, the, the that second game in that series. Um, and then they lose seven to nine, you know, the Sunday game against Washington. Then Stanford, you know, they lose one to three and it's really not till the last inning, you know, that that one gets cracked. Uh, they, they win the second game two to one, although with an asterisk should have been three to one. The umps literally stole a run from them. Um, and then they lose the last game two to three, right? You know, heartbreaker, you know, game, uh, you know, UCLA, they blank them the first game, win three to zero. 
right? Uh, and then, you know, second game, it's a four to seven loss. And really, you know, they're winning that game up until the last inning, you know, you know, again. And then, uh, you know, this last game, you know, sort of it's two to two for a long time. Oregon's, uh, you know, sitting on it. And, uh, and then at the very end of the game, uh, you know, they they uh, they give up a couple of home runs. Basically, you know, Morgan Scott can't hold it together for six innings. Um, and in the second game, you know, the uh, 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 um, uh, uh, Stevie Hansen gives up a grand slam, you know, in the middle of it. That's what cracks open the game. You know, it's basically a couple of home runs in those last two games crack it open for UCLA. And, and if not for those, you know, homers, Oregon's, you know, right in it. Right. So like, you know, Oregon's, you know, hanging, w- winning games against top 10 teams and hanging tough with them and just not able to, you know, close down the series. Um, I, you know, I, uh, you know, I understand why those are sort of like frustrating, you know, for Melissa Lombardi's, you know, team. I've generally been encouraged by them. I have a theory, you know, I, I have sort of my own opinion about, um, this team, uh, but I wanted to get your take on it. You know, what's before we get into like the specifics of how these UCLA games went, like, could you give me your, you know, your thoughts sort of overall, like what's the status of this team? What's your opinion of this team? Well, I think that um, the difference between going through these, um, you know, straight series against top rated uh, Pac-12 teams, difference between what we're seeing this year and what we saw last season was that, um, you know, last season, it, if we got behind, there was pretty much no hope mm-hmm. uh, because we only had one pitcher. Um, uh, uh, Clyde Mies wasn't uh, terribly consistent, and she really didn't pitch very well the the last third of the season. Mm. What's making this season different is we have uh, a legitimate pitcher that uh, that can you know start uh, as well as relief. I mean, you know, uh, Morgan Scott pitched the shutout against UCLA. What more can you ask? Yeah. That that is something we would have never seen last year, and. Um, I, I think that she has allowed um, Scotty Hansen to not have to be that one person that all the time a, has to be there and do it. That's a funny rhetorical slip. You conflated two people. <laughs> it's Stevie Hansen and Morgan See, Scott, but yeah. Morgan Scott, her like Twitter handle is Scotty. Um, right. Yeah, the the pitching situation is um, is an interesting one because you know last year true freshman Stevie Hansen was pretty much the only reliable pitcher that Oregon had, and it um, and it put Oregon in a sort of a tight spot a lot because like it it felt like you know it felt like even times where she needed to be relieved she couldn't be relieved because like who could you pull her for you know. I definitely think it's true this year that the bullpen is more robust. Um, but like um, in sort of a strange twist, you know, one of the pitchers that they brought in Morgan Scott um, uh, from the transfer portal, like has turned out to be the real ace. Like she's, mm-hmm. she's great. Um, but like, it really feels like, you know, and then Stevie Hansen has just absolutely killed it um, in the out of conference slate. 
Um, but then against these three conference teams who, again, let's reiterate, these are top 10 teams like, you know, t- top 10 teams are going to get hits even against good pitchers like but like, boy, you know, the the difference in performance um, from Morgan Scott versus these top 10 teams and Stevie Hansen versus these top 10 teams is kind of night and day. Um, and, it's, and Morgan Scott's really come into her own the uh, in during these three series. It's yeah. where, you know, she has had uh, a lot of dominant moments. And, um, and whereas I, I kind of think that for whatever reason, um, Stevie Hanston's just kind of hovering, or I, I don't know whether, um, there's a, a confidence issue or yeah. or whether you know Stevie Hansen's uh, still a solid pitcher it's just that we're seeing uh, more improvement from Morgan Scott yeah who as knows? compared you know, to her first start I, I don't know if it's you know, you know sophomore slump or confidence issues or what I mean this most recent game against UCLA was interesting because you know it looked like um you know because b- because Lombardi had Scott, you know, start the first game and it looked like she was reserving her to start the third game, but instead she had Stevie Hansen start the first game or the third game mm-hmm. and then winds up pulling her after the first inning, you know, basically because she gives up two runs, like three hits, like, you know, and, and looked like up until the very end, you know, looked like she was going to give the game away, you know, it looked like Oregon was going to wind up, you know, cause it was like tied at two to two forever for that entire game. It looked like mm-hmm. Morgan Scott was going to shut down UCLA and Oregon was going to lose because of the two runs that Stevie Hansen gave up in one inning. Um, and then, you know, and then it sort of turned out that wound up being true anyway, because like Morgan Scott had to, you know, basically pitch for six innings. And it wasn't until that seventh when she just like her arms sort of gave out on her, you know, and she started giving up home runs, you know, which I th- also sort of think indicts the third pitcher in the in the well, I don't know if it does or it doesn't, but like Lombard and maybe it indicts Lombardi, but like she was clearly hesitant to bring in Regan Breedlove to relieve um, uh, Morgan Scott, you know, which she probably should have done in the, in the seventh, like she probably shouldn't have left Scott in for six whole innings uh, and brought in Breedlove, but she didn't want to do that, you know, against UCLA and what UCLA punished, um, uh, you know, Lombardi or Breedlove or Scott or Hanson, however you want to like, look at that matrix, but however it is you want to look at it, UCLA punished them for it um, in the seventh where they just started teeing off on Scott and hitting home runs. And that's what cracked the game open. Um, But like, you know, I look at that contrast in the bullpen between, you know, what Oregon's bullpen looked like and what UCLA's bullpen, because this is what UCLA's bullpen was. They started the game with Brooke Inez, former Oregon pitcher who got to, you know, spend a year on Oregon's, you know, dime, on a scholarship rehabbing and then hit the bricks to go to UCLA, you know, neat trick, huh? Um, Then her relief was literally the number one prep recruit pitcher whose very first game was a no, no, you know, was a no hitter. Um, And then the, her relief was Megan Verimo. (laughs) It was like, you know, the, the, the best softball pitcher in America. Um, It's like, you know, UCLA's bullpen 
is out of this world. Like if you want to be an elite softball team, that's what your bullpen needs to look like. And so even though I think, I think it's, it's incontrovertibly true that Oregon is a better team than last year. And specifically because it's incontrovertibly true that they've upgraded their bullpen. They still haven't upgraded their bullpen to be UCLA's level or Stanford's level. Uh, It's definitely at least as good as Washington's level, but Washington has the edge over uh, Oregon because Washington is just a fantastic hitting team. I also think that Oregon is a pretty good hitting team, but like, you know, Oregon's a very well-rounded team. It's just like, they're not as good of a pitching team as UCLA and Stanford, and they're not as good of a batting team as Washington and like, and that's it. That's, you know, you need to be, uh, you know, if you're an all around team, you need to be all around excellent and they're just all around good, you know, and that's how you yeah, wind up being like a 20th ranked team and losing to top 10 teams. Right. And if you're going to play to the level of uh, a number seven Stanford or number three UCLA or any of the other top teams, you need that third ace player. That, yeah, and that's that's the component that UCLA has that that we don't. That's why we're. Uh, it's, I think we're objectively playing better than last it's year. Also, but, but that's what here, you're left with. This is. Okay, and then also, again, you know, my job is an analyst. My job is to locate where the game is uh, won and lost and not, you know, I'm not pointing fingers or telling people to feel bad. Um, you know, I am telling people not to be emotional about things. Um, and and so when I see an analysis that, or something that's masquerading as analysis, but what I think is really just emotion, I will call that out um, to wit. Um, in this third game against UCLA, Oregon kept stranding batters. Uh, you know, they, they kept putting people, you know, they like load the bases or have people, you know, multiple, you know, runners in scoring position. And then they, you know, and then they get the third out and they, you know, they'd strand them, you know, and that happened both in game two and in game three. And I understand that that's super frustrating. Hell, you wrote an entire article about baseball last year that was about that. And like, I, dude, I totally understand that that's super frustrating. Um, I don't, like in my opinion is given the context of UCLA's absolutely bonkers pitching staff, the fact that Oregon was getting that many runners on base in the first place means that the bats aren't the problem. Like the, the, you know, the, like look at UCLA, look at the number of hits that UCLA is giving up against every other team. Uh, literally every other team and Oregon clobbered them. Oregon is the massive deviation from the rest of UCLA schedule in terms of hits giving up and then, and then to turn and So the, for Oregon fans, I understand because they're frustrated, but like out of that, their frustration being like, this team is just totally a non clutch hitting team. And I'm furious at these bats. And that's really the problem. It's like, dude, you don't man. Like they so overperformed you know, versus what UCLA's pitching, um, you know, the, the baseline is that like, you can't like, that's so backwards, man. Like Oregon's doing a great job, you know, you know, at the plate versus, you know, how well these pitchers perform, you know, the issue is there in my, you know, where the game is lost is the bullpen is Oregon's bullpen. They're just not able to, to, to lock these, um, you know, UCLA's batters down long enough. And I mean, the same was true of Stanford. I mean, look at the scores in the Stanford games that, you know, look, it's, it's, 
they lose one to three in eight innings. They lose two to three, you know, like that's, you know, it's, you know, in low scoring games, it's just like they need one more K, you know, like that's, mm-hmm. that's it, man. Yep. Well, it's a, it's an improvement off of last year for sure. And yeah, you know, fortunately we, well, we've seen what this uh, Oregon Ducks team is capable of against the top talent in the conference. And that, you know, the results are more than a little encouraging. You know, I, I expect them to uh, be doing very well with the rest of their conference schedule, you know, because uh, uh, like you say, it's, you know, it's for, for lack of a couple things going their way. Um, you know, this is uh, an Oregon team that uh, should be able to do very well with the rest of the conference schedule. Oh yeah, that definitely seems true. I mean, uh, I, the the rankings I, I don't think have been updated yet, but like they, I mean, look, uh, they were uh, eight eighteen today, or Oregon's eighteen. So like, you know, they had a pretty brutal non conference. All things considered, <laughs> interestingly enough, they've played three different squads that were ranked number three at the time that they played them. Um, and actually have gone two and three against such teams. You know, they, they lost to Oklahoma state, but they beat Florida, uh, you know, eight to zero when they were ranked number three. And then they, you know, the first time that they played UCLA, they beat them three to zero. Um, so, uh, yeah, but you know, the rest of the schedule, you know, is Oregon state, you know, which is not looking like a great team this year. Uh, they play Montana and, uh, some school like Lindenwood, which I've never heard of before. Um, Arizona State, which isn't, you know, looking fantastic this year either. Um, you know, Portland State. Arizona's looking like an okay team. Um, Pacific Cal, which is looking okay. Utah, which is looking okay. But, like, none of these are top 10 teams. Like, or or really, I, I, at this point, even ranked. Um, although, I think a couple of those teams might, like, sneak into the top 25 um, by the end of the season. Um, and then this year there's a Pac-12 tournament for the first time. So we'll look forward to that. You know, they get another crack at a number of the, you know, Oregon will probably wind up getting another crack at some of these top 10 teams and we'll see how they perform at the end of the year um, and what they learned um, over the course of the season. But like, you know, I, I just sort of want to reiterate, like the way that Oregon opened in their conference schedule was brutal. Like I don't think anybody else in the country had to play nine consecutive games against top 10 teams. Like that's like, that might be, I don't know. It'd be difficult to do that research, but like, I I, I don't think anybody else in the country had to do anything like that. Nine games against top 10 teams. Are you kidding me? Like it, and they won three of them. They won a game apiece against every one of those teams. And like, they were all tight, you know, like none of these are blowouts, like anywhere close, right? Like, you know, Oregon's they're right there, man. And so like, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, Hey, it's guaranteed that they're going to cruise against the rest of these scrubs on their schedule. Like, please don't mistake me, you know, for saying that, but I do think this should probably get a little easier. <laughs> you know, the, the, the going should be a little smoother, you know, uh, you know, for, for the rest of the season going into the tournament. Um, and, you know, it probably shouldn't be quite as brutal as this stretch. Uh, and yeah, and ho- uh, hopefully we see some learning and development that allows, um, yeah, the the Ducks pitching to 
be able to have some more options the next time we do hopefully play the UCLA or Stanford or, you know, any of these other teams in the Pac-12 tournament. And who knows, maybe yeah. next time around you, you get the series. All right, let's take a break. Uh, we come back, we'll talk some football. So uh, I continued with my uh, football transfer uh, series. Uh, I wrote about two different transfers uh, who came in as linebackers, uh, Justin Jacobs uh, from Iowa and uh, Connor Soley from Arizona State. Um, the interesting thing about these guys is that both of them played in 4-3 systems and Oregon doesn't use a 4-3. Um, uh, and in fact, even more interesting is that they were both, um, they're both like the three in the four, three system, uh, in defenses that wanted to switch to nickels, you know, a lot. In fact, Arizona state was playing out of a nickel on like 79% of snaps. And so like, you know, Jacobs was on the field, uh, about 50% of the time solely was on this field only about 21% of the time because the, you know, that, that was the guy who was taken off the field when they switched to a nickel, you know, defense. And so I kind of understand why they transferred out, like not because they were bad players or anything, but rather just like, I'm a starter, but you don't want me to play the majority of the snaps. Like, you know, I'm out of here, man. Um, like I, I get that. Um, and, uh, but like, it's very interesting that they transferred, you know, to Oregon and that uh, at least officially on the roster, they're listed as inside linebackers because here, and here was the thing that was really interesting about doing film study is that the position that they would play, uh, you know, at their, at their previous school wasn't you know, really anything like the way an inside linebacker has played at Oregon in their three down, you know, Oregon's been playing a three down system basically, you know, since Nick Aliotti with a couple of variations, um, you know, or one deviation for in 2016 under Brady Hoke, which let's not speak of that any longer. Um, but essentially, you know, they've been operating with, you know, two inside linebackers who are, you know, run plugger, you know, they're, they're basically their job is to stop the run, you know, to, to come up and stop the run. Um, and, and play in the box, you know, you know, if they're, they start out in the box and if they're dropping back into pass coverage, they're dropping back to defend the middle of the field, but you know, they're middle of the field defenders is what I'm saying. And the interesting thing about watching Jacobs and Solis tape is that that's not where they were playing at all. Like really extremely rare that they were playing in the box. Um, instead, both of those guys were playing, you know, outside the box, you know, basically they're playing over the tight end, you know, wherever it was, the tight end was, you know, or, or slot receiver was. So usually that's like split out and they're dropping into pass coverage with that guy. Or if the tight end came into the formation, they're over that guy and playing, you know, and sort of, you know, taking it back on that guy who's blocking. So they're sort of like, you know, setting the edge and run support, or they're running with him, you know, when he's, you know, running out, you know, to catch passes or whatever, you know, from the formation um uh, so like basically 
not what an Oregon fan really thinks of when they think of a linebacker, certainly not an inside linebacker or, you know, an OLB who's like an edge setter pass rusher, you know, really more like what an Oregon fan would think of as like a nickel, you know, what the big nickel has been doing, like what Bennett Williams and Jamal Hill has been doing is really more like what Soleil, Soleil and, uh, and Jacobs, you know, have been doing. And Jacobs in particular is really built like, he's, he's built like, he's built like Jamal Hill, but he's much faster and he's built like, you know, Bennett Williams, but, but, but longer and taller. And so I was like, oh, these guys are, you know, oh, this, this ILB thing, that's a smoke screen. These guys are really nickelbacks. You know, they're, 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 I get it. I see this. I, I see through this. These guys are really nickelbacks. This ILB thing is a smokescreen. Um, and so like all of this, like, you know, the film study, you know, for, for my article is like, it's nothing but film clips of them, like, uh, you know, uh, of showing them, you know, I, I have four film compilation videos for all of them and they're, it's the same you know, it's, you know, here's, here's how they are in coverage over, you know, tight ends and slot receivers here, how they are, you know, in block destruction here, they, how they are in, um, tackling in space, which you have to do when you're, you know, playing out in coverage a lot. Uh, here's how they are in run support, but you know, it's almost never, here's how they are playing in the box, you know, as an ILB would in Oregon's defense, or at least Oregon's defense from, you know, from 2002 to 2022 um, because that film doesn't exist. Like I can't show you that film because it doesn't really exist. Right. Um, well, what do you, what do you think Oregon's impetus was in uh, picking up those two linebackers? And- well, that is a very, very, very good question um, because so here's <clears throat> there's Okay. There's two different ways of, of answering that question. There's two different, you know, strong possibilities. Number one is my initial theory, um, which is they're not ILBs, they're nickels. They're, they're the Jamal Hill Bennett Williams replacements. And if that's what they wind up being, I I wouldn't give it a second thought like at all. Like it, it would make total sense. Like, oh, it's just, you know, the, the, those guys, you know, version 2.0, like if that's, you know, it would, it would totally be congruent with their tape, um, and with their experience and with their build, um, it would just be the Oregon 2022 defense, but you know, with the next guy in, in that position, like, but like in particularly in Jacobs, you know, case it's like it, it Jacobs would be like, if you took the best qualities of Jamal Hill and uh, the best qualities of Bennett Williams and you married them and you made like the Superman out of those two, you know, like Jamal Hill's size with, um, Bennett Williams, like speed and, and, and like tackling ability and, and, and like, Ooh, yeah. Like, and, and, and make him be the nickel who has sometimes occasional like box responsibilities or play up on the line in like a quasi bear front like they were playing against cal um, which i put a link back to that video in my article to show everybody how oregon was using that particular player um in that game in that front like uh, if that is how jacobs winds up being used i would be like oh that makes perfect sense done i don't have to give this any more thought it totally you know like yeah well done you know easy peasy now that doesn't mean that that's the best solution um, for these, you know, puzzle pieces, just that like, Oh, it, it all fits, you know, it all fits perfectly. I don't have to think about this anymore. Um, 
But I can't say that that's the best solution because that's dependent on a bunch of other things happening in, in practice about, you know, different dudes developing at different positions and, you know, which I'm not privy to any of those things. So like, how can I, I can't know what the best solution to these problems are just like that would totally make sense. And I wouldn't have to think about it anymore. So that's solution. Number one is they're not really ILPs, they're nickels, but there's another solution. <laughs> So like as a little bit of background, I don't have any insight sources and I like it that way. It's, it's, it's actually very important to me that I, none of what I write comes from any kind of like special access. Like, um, you know, everything that I write is from publicly available information and watching broadcast tape. And that's important to me because it means that nobody can threaten me. N nobody can threaten to cut off my access. Nobody can threaten to quit poking up my phone calls. Nobody can throw me out of press conferences. You know, no, nobody can get mad at what I write. You know, nobody even knows my name. There's yeah. a reason for that. You know, like <laughs> it means that I can write whatever the hell I want and, and no one can retaliate. Um, but sometimes a little bird lands on my window and tells me some things. And a couple different little birds have landed on my window. And and what they all say is Justin Jacobs is going to be the middle linebacker for Oregon. And like. Hey. And given the tape that I watched at Iowa for his, you know, his entire year, 2021, he was injured in 2022. Um, that doesn't make any sense. At least it, the, for the tape that I watched at Iowa for him in 2021 and the body type that he has and the defense that Oregon fielded in 2022 and the way that the Oregon used inside linebackers in 2022, that doesn't make any sense. But here's how you make it make sense. If that's the case. Okay. Uh is go back and watch my preview Georgia um, when Oregon played them at the beginning of 2022. Go go watch how Dan Lanning organized Georgia's defense when they had all the players that they wanted to have. Their inside linebackers didn't look like Noah Sewell. Their inside linebackers looked like Justin Jacobs. They, they looked like lean, fast guys who played in pass defense. And the reason for that is the mint defensive philosophy is a stop the pass, not at all costs, but at almost all costs defensive philosophy. Um, the, the, it basically says in the modern it's, it's motivating overall, you know, 35,000 feet philosophy is that the pass hurts you way more than the run in modern college football. And that we're, we will devote some resources to stopping the run because you, you, you can't allow yourself to just be, you know, totally run all over, you know, Washington found that out whenever they played in a big game, when they Washington under Kwiatkowski for all those years was a team that was, you know, stop the pass at all costs. And we don't care about stopping the run. And then whenever they played Ohio state or Penn state or Stanford or Oregon, you know, another, you know, whenever they played a big game, they get run all over and they're like, Oh shoot, I guess there's a drawback to that philosophy. Um, <laughs> you know, so the, the mint, <laughs> yeah so the mint front and then next time they'd lose yeah right um so the mint front is like okay we'll we'll take it down a notch um you know so what they do is their their notion is okay we're gonna get three just you know absolute killers like just monsters for our defensive front you know to plug up the run 
Um, and then we're going to have like basically eight defensive backs, <laughs> you know, we're, we're definitely going to have five defensive backs, right? You know, it's a nickel defense. Um, but then those three, uh, linebackers, they're really going to be pass stoppers, you know, first and foremost, you know, the OLB is going to be a pass rusher and, uh, but maybe sometimes, you know, drop into pass coverage and, uh, the, the ILBs are really, we're going to have them drop into pass coverage first and foremost. And really the guy, you know, them and the safeties are going to come up and stop the run only when it's very, very clear that, you know, it has to be a run. And even then we're going to try to spill the run so that the, 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 the running back has to go east west first before he's able to turn the corner and go north south so that we can minimize the damage that the run you know does and even if he winds up getting three four yards like i don't care like i'm i'm really just worried about stopping the pass and so that means that the inside linebackers are not you know guys who look who look like they're built like fire hydrants they're guys who look like they're built like big nickels you know who who the first thing they do on every snap is drop into pass coverage and, but here's the thing per the mint defensive philosophy, you would really only want to do that if you had the utmost confidence in your defensive line that they really can on their own without any help from the, um, the inside linebackers stop the run on their own, or at least spill the run on their own, which probably wasn't the case in Dan Lanning's first year at Oregon. Like they probably needed the inside linebackers to be more like traditional inside linebackers who were helping stop the run. Mm-hmm. Um, but and to, to get back to the question that you asked me, you know, what, what would it mean if, if Jacobs and Soli are, are actually inside linebackers? Mm-hmm. He, I, here's the funny thing is that I, so I write this whole, whole article about Jacobs and Soli, all the video clips are about them. Like I say their names dozens and dozens of times, but what the article is really about, like the implication about what Oregon's strategic posture is, about what their defense and the construction of their defense is, what it's really about is what the status of the defensive line is. Because if they are actually ILBs, given what their tape and their experience is, what that means, what that probably means is that Oregon's defensive staff is signaling that they believe that the defensive line at this point are monsters. That they... That the, the Oregon defensive staff believes that the Oregon defensive line has evolved to the point that they really and truly are capable of stopping or at least, you know, spilling the run on their own without uh, inside linebacker support or at least guys who are built like that um, so that they can operate the mint front the way the mint front is supposed to be operated and that the ILBs are pass stoppers, you know, pet pass defenders first and foremost, um, and really only come up to stop the run, you know, in a way that like, you know, safeties do, you know, which is like tackle the guy who's already been sort of like partially tackled already. Um, and not the way that like fire hydrant ILBs stop the run. Or, uh, the other thing is, is do simulated pressure stuff where the important thing is that you're fast and skinny so that you can knife through and do you know, like funny blitz simulation stuff. Um, but again, the premium for your body type there is not being a fighter hydrant dude. The premium there is being fast and skinny and being scary and like intimidating the quarterback, which you do not by being like, you know, stocky and scary or stocky and wide, you know, and, and muscle, you know, muscly, you do that by being like fast and having long limbs and coming at you like a, you know, a praying mantis. Um, so like, 
that that's the implication of Jacobs and Soli being inside linebackers is that like, well, maybe the mint front is actually operational now, or at least it's a signal that the defensive staff believes that that's the case. I can't, you know, that's the thing is that it creates three different questions, right? Um, each of which the answer to is, I don't know, you know, number one, uh, you know, are they in fact going to be ILBs? Number two, does that mean that uh, they are that the defensive staff is signaling that you know mint front uh, philosophy of ILBs as pass defenders first and foremost is operational? Uh, uh, number three, are they correct about that? that the defensive line is ready to perform, you know, on their own without any support from the ILBs. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that's why you say in your article, that's what's going to make this spring game really fascinating. Yeah. And, and what even are they going to do. And frankly, even the spring game is not going to answer those questions far from definitively, like because they they could just be trying it out. And it could be that it looks one way in the spring game, but come but but fall is six months later. Right. You know, it could be that by the time they actually play their opener in fall, they're like, ah, geez, we just couldn't, you know, it's, it's not going to be operational this year, maybe next year. And, and yeah, you know, Justin, I, I need you to be a, a nickel now. And if that's yeah. what happens, you know, it, it is entirely possible that they try that in the spring game and then they go to, you know, Jacobs as a nickel for the fall and they try it again in 2024 because he has well, eligibility for that. Or I think he does. Um, yeah, you know, like, be, that's a possible solution too. It'll be interesting to see what they're trying in the spring game, um, just in and of itself for information's sake, but also, you know, comparing the these fundamental things that they're doing in the spring game with what we're seeing in the fall. Yeah. So like, that's the really fun and interesting thing about doing these transfer, you know, pieces is that they're fundamentally different from, right. You know, not like I actually do this, but you know, lots of people do, they write articles about prep recruits and they're like, they try to project, you know, how are these prep recruits going to go? Well, who knows, but transfers, Mm -hmm. I can look at college tape, you know, Mm -hmm. and you know, college tape is interesting because I'm looking at them playing in different systems. You know, and, and I can, you know, make these inferences where it's like, wait a minute, why would you take a guy from a four three and put him into a, a three four, you know, you know, and, and try to figure out like, well, what's the implication of that? And like, you know, you know, even though I'm out on a limb here, well, I, I'm not really out on a limb because I'm not really predicting anything. I'm not saying, you know, where Je- Jacobs is going to play or where Soli is going to play. The, what I am saying is if this, then that. And if this other thing, then this third thing, like, you know, these are what the implications would be for what we, you know, if we see this in the spring game, it probably means the staff is signaling this. And if we see this other thing, it probably means the staff is signaling this other thing. Like I'm, I'm trying to provide a roadmap, um, for, for what these different things would mean rather than saying, aha, this is what it's going to be. Put your money on this. Cause no one, I'm sorry, no one can do that. Anybody who's, who says that they can do that is trying to sell you something. Um, uh, uh, but I, I, I do believe that I can give you a, a roadmap for implications. Um, and I, I, there's, there was doing this work on Jacobs and Soli's film at Arizona state and, and Iowa, anti-respectively, uh, uh, was illuminating because, you know, it, 
you know, Oregon lists them as ILBs. And if you, if anybody expected to turn on that tape and see guys playing ILB, they were, they, they were apt for a surprise because they were not playing those positions. And it should be abundantly clear from reading my article and watching the video clips. They were not doing that. They were playing pass coverage guys and, you know, and, and outside run support guys. And that's how their bodies are built. And, um, and so it would be very interesting to watch them try to, you know, to either a convert that to be an ILB. And so therefore, you know, how Oregon's defense may be shifting in 2023 as maybe some, you know, the, the defensive line is shaping into something different. Um, or, uh, maybe that's not ready to go and they're not going to be ILBs. And instead they're trying to shore up, you know, what the secondary looks like or that sort of hybrid position, which is what the, the, the star is, you know, I mean, literally that's what I was, um, the, the, the other position that Jacobs would play is called the cash position at Iowa, which is their, like, that's the name of their hybrid, um, linebacker slash defensive back. Like he was the backup cash, uh, player, which is like, I mean, it's almost perfectly analogous to how the star safety plays in, in, in in Dan Lanning's defense. So like, again, if that's what he winds up doing, which I, you know, maybe entirely possible, it would be a total fit for his film. Like he's really good at it. You can watch a bunch of video clips, you know, I, I, you know, that's, I'm sorry. You know, we, we've, we've, we've been talking about this for all this time for all these implications. And we haven't really been talking about the dude himself. The dude himself is super talented like super talent. He's super long. He's like six, four. He's got these super long arms. It was really a treat to watch. I have, I, I'm not kidding about this. I have zero negative marks on my tally sheet for him in tackling. Every time he went to yes. tackle a dude, and that you, dude went you down. You said that too. Yeah. I was, you I mean, it was crazy. And I put like, yeah. And I, you know, I, 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 you know, I only had space to put in four clips of him tackling, but every one of them was great. And I, and I mean, like, yeah, you know, I really liked seeing that after, you know, having it started in 2020, but these last three years, you know, Oregon linebackers have had tackling problems. Yeah. Um, and seeing a guy who I like literally had zero negative marks in tackling. Like, yeah, all right. I'm done with that. Um, <laughs> you know, I like watching, watching him in block destruction. I like watching Connor Soli like diagnose plays and runs. I had to watch him and run support way more often. So because the nature of Arizona state's defense and when they would bring him in was only when they had, you know, they were facing 12 personnel, read the article. We'll explain why that is. Um, but Connor Soli, you know, doing that guy comes from a football family. It's actually, it was interesting to, to read about his entire family and the ASU history there. Um, I didn't have space for it in the article, but, but he's, it's a long football family. He has a high football OQ and watching him diagnose run place and float exactly where he needs to be was cool. It was cool to watch a, a sharp football player, you know, diagnose plays, float them properly with square shoulders and, and, you know, get down and make the tackle. Like it's fun to watch a smart football player um and, and and watch his brain work and like yeah that's cool like i like i believe when the little birdies tell me that these two guys instantly improved oregon's linebacker core like i i don't believe i i don't think that's you know you know silly coach speak that you know you always hear like i i have no difficulty believing that you know right away these guys both strike me as very sharp you know talented with you know lots of tools to to to, to build upon um and, and, you know, I think they're good uh, additions. It's just, 
it's way, way, way interesting, you know, what the implications might be given that they're apparently going to be ILBs and they weren't in their previous systems and they, and they were not in systems that Oregon uses. And Dan Lanning went out and grabbed those guys anyway. And like, that's unusual to grab guys who come from different systems. You do that because you're looking for a different talent set and tool set. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. I'm intrigued. All right. I think we'll wrap it up there. Any parting words or wisdom for us, Badwater? No, just uh, go ducks, go diamond ducks. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, Oregon state, uh, for the softball team. It's Arizona for the baseball team. Both of them are, uh, on the road. Um, should be good weather in Tucson, uh, uh, usually is, but it never rains on this podcast. <laughs>